Welcome to the Annotations Podcast, coming to you from the literary margins. Join us as we muck about in marginalia, linger between the lines, and contemplate literary context. This episode will build on our last episode channeling the author, and will explore how literature can influence people's behavior in real life. If you think about it, this has been a concern for both writers and readers for quite a long time. It first took the form of superstition around written texts, many of which were thought to have power to influence people in the natural world. I'm thinking here of spells, curses, or information related to medicine. This would have been closely guarded, which leads us to the very popular method for controlling the powerful influence of reading, literacy. If people can't read, they can't be influenced by writing. If they can't write, they can't create books that will inspire a revolution. We can get a sense of this power in Charles Dickens' Victorian novel, Bleak House. When an illiterate older man, Mr. Crook, finally is able to read, he spontaneously combusts. While this is a potential commentary on many different issues, Crook is a prodigious consumer of cheap gin, for instance, it is at least partly a physical manifestation of the power given by being able to access meaning in texts. We can also think about limiting access to the disruptive potential of books in the context of translation, for example, resisting translation of the Bible into a vernacular language, and in the practice of banning books, a legacy with a long international history, including the 16th century index of forbidden books, which was added to well into the 20th century. So in today's episode, we're going to discuss the very real power of literature to inspire action that the strategies and belief I've just mentioned we're trying to guard against. We'll hear from Kate about the transtemporal influence of Sydney, Lady Morgan's book, The Wild Irish Girl, on fashionable behavior and dress. And we'll also present Becky's interview with David Wheeler about how J.R. Ackerley's My Father and Myself helped him embrace his identity by coming out. But to start off, Becky and Jennifer, that's me, will discuss the more dangerous impact of literature in inspiring crime. Thanks, Jennifer. Yes, though books have inspired both wonderful and atrocious actions, it seems as though the negative ones more often make their way into the spotlight. We feature a few positive examples of textual influence later in the episode, with David Wheeler's account of J.R. Ackerley's My Father and Myself helping him to come out of the closet, and a story about the fashion trends inspired by Sidney Owens. But our episode wouldn't be complete without some accounts of the crimes purportedly inspired by literature. To give you a feel for one such notorious example, we're going to step back in time to 1980 when Mark Chapman is on trial for the murder of John Lennon. At the trial, he reads aloud the following passage from his favorite book. I keep picturing all these little kids playing some game in this big field of rye and all. Thousands of little kids and nobody's around. Nobody big, I mean, except me. And I'm standing on the edge of some crazy cliff. What I have to do, I have to catch everybody if they start to go over the cliff. I mean, if they're running and they don't look where they're going, I have to come out from somewhere and catch them. That's all I do all day. I just be the catcher and the rye and all. I know it's crazy, but that's the only thing I'd really like to be. I know it's crazy. 
This passage, in case you didn't recognize it, is from J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye. How exactly this would help Chapman's case was not clear, but Mark Chapman seems less concerned with trying to salvage his own reputation than he did with bolstering the reputation of J.D. Salinger. He remarked victoriously to his lawyer, Everybody is going to be reading this book with the help of the God Almighty media. Chapman called himself the catcher in the rye for this generation, explaining that each generation has its own catcher, and compared himself to Moses and Jesus. When he had assassinated John Lennon, Mark Chapman had brought nothing but a gun and a copy of The Catcher in the Rye. Resonating with Holden Caulfield's abhorrence of phonies and convinced that Lennon was a phony, Chapman believed he was writing the 27th chapter to Salinger's 26th chapter book. However, part of him also recognized that perhaps his actions had gone beyond the bounds of what Holden would do. He told police two hours after committing the murder, I'm sure the large part of me is Holden Caulfield, who is the main person in the book. The small part of me must be the devil. Chapman's actions, not surprisingly, added to the notoriety of the book, with many people refusing to read it, even if they had been assigned to do so. The stigmatization of the book was nothing new. Despite being a bestseller within two weeks of its 1951 release, it has also been a favorite of censors since its publication, according to the American Library Association. With its frequent expletives and insight into the mind of the troubled teenager Holden Caulfield, it became an emblem of adolescent angst. Numerous high schools banned it. Some teachers who did use it, fearful they might be fired, asked students to cover the book in plain brown paper. The notoriety of the book increased as Ronald Reagan's attempted assassin also was found to have read it. With over 65 million copies sold, only three of which supposedly inspired murders or attempted murders, it seems safe to say that this book only plays a supporting role for those who are already trigger-happy. Jumping back a century, we can find plenty more examples of literature inspiring crime. The relationship was symbiotic, as much literature was based off of actual crimes that had recently taken place. Contemporary critics of both Newgate fiction and sensation novels, including both Oliphant and Mansell, claim that fiction made crime so attractive, romantic, or exciting that it encouraged criminal behavior. One case that is frequently cited is that of Francois Corvassier, valet to Lord William Russell, who murdered Russell around 1840 and then claimed he had been corrupted by Ainsworth's Jack Shepard. Jack Shepard featured accounts of robbery and escape. The story is divided into three parts called epochs. It starts out with Jonathan Wilde, who's Jack Shepard's father, who's encouraged into a life of crime, and then eventually we also see Jack Shepard himself go into a life of crime. It was published alongside Oliver Twist and Bentley's Miscellany from 1837 to 1839. Whereas the criminals in Dickens' tale reformed, the criminals in Ainsworth's did not. Jack Shepard romanticized the outlaw figure, which took root in the cultural imagination. Francois Crevassier had read Jack Shepard when he decided to steal some silverware from his boss. He was discovered and told he had to leave. So Crevassier planned to murder Lord Russell. I mean, that's a logical thing to do after you're caught stealing silverware, right? So he took more silverware, this time a butcher knife, and slit his throat. He tried to frame it as a break-in theft and murder, but eventually it was discovered that the items missing had been concealed around the house by Crevassier. 
He was eventually caught, both for the murder and also for the silverware theft, both of which he admitted to at his trial. The 23-year-old also claimed inspiration from Ainsworth's then-popular potboiler about the beloved underclass robber Jack Shepard. This led to numerous indictments of this text in the media. A publication calculated to familiarize the mind with cruelties, held the London Examiner, and to serve as the cutthroat's manual. This also caused stage adaptations to be censored. The name Jack Shepard was not allowed to be used in a play title, though adaptations persisted nonetheless. Though Ainsworth went on to have a successful career, his reputation never fully recovered from this case, and many claim that's why he's not in the literary canon. Yet he still remained a bestseller in his time. His Newgate novels and Penny Dreadfuls continued to romanticize the outlaw figure for many decades to come. Francois Cravassier, on the other hand, was hanged outside Newgate Prison on the 6th of July of 1840. A crowd of around 40,000 witnessed his death, including Charles Dickens and William Mackpee Thackeray, both of whom protested about the brutality of such a spectacle in their later writing. So as it turns out, claiming literature as a motivation for crime also takes place during the 18th century. This becomes less surprising when we think about just how many novels were themselves concerned about the influence of reading novels and romances on readers' perceptions leading up to and during this period. A few examples include Miguel Cervantes' Don Quixote, Charlotte Lennox's Female Quixote, which is a play on Cervantes in which a young woman's belief the romances she reads are real lead to a lot of embarrassment and later Jane Austen's satiric novel Northanger Abbey which also critiques the same theme this time through the influence of gothic novels rather than romances our story begins with a play John Gay's immensely popular and successful Beggar's Opera which was first performed in 1728 the play is a satirical jab at upper-class Britain's fascination with Italian opera in the 18th century. It's an anti-opera that mixes high and low culture. Folk songs and broadside ballads are sung alongside opera arias, with the tragic melodrama of a typical opera framing a storyline whose heroes are criminals and prostitutes. The play ran for 62 consecutive performances, and the success of the anti-opera was accompanied by a public desire for keepsakes and mementos, ranging from images of characters on fans and clothing, playing cards and fire screens, broadsides featuring all the characters, and the rapidly published musical score of the opera. The aggressive marketing of this play anticipates the similar fandom of the 18th century's immensely popular novels, Samuel Richardson's Pamela and Clarissa. So it was no surprise that a young man named William Brody went to see it. When he grew up, William Brody became Deacon Brody, an upstanding citizen of Edinburgh and member of the town council. Professionally, he was a fine craftsman specializing in domestic furniture, such as cupboards and cabinets. And crucially, he was also a locksmith. Through this work, he had access to the houses of very rich people and organizations, and he was able to make impressions of keys, which meant he could come back at night and rob those people and organizations. Despite a sizable inheritance and successful business, Brody began his life of crime in 1768 when he copied keys to a bank door and stole 
800 pounds. In an attempt to emulate McKeith, the appealing criminal hero of the Beggar's Opera, Brody began to lead a double life as a successful businessman by day who transformed into a master criminal with a gang and two mistresses by night. Apparently, he even had a secret room where he would change into the clothing of his alter ego. Brody and his gang were successful at a variety of heists for over a decade, but Brody was finally caught when a member of his gang, who was bitter after a failed heist, turned in Brody and other central members of the gang for the reward money. With a crowd of 40,000 spectators, the story of Deacon Brody's double life became legendary and became familiar to Robert Lewis Stevenson, who grew up with Brody's furniture in his house and who wrote a version of Brody's tale as a play. Though this was not successful, Stevenson revisited this story in his well-known book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But the story of influence doesn't end there. Like The Beggar's Opera, the novel was an immediate success and sold 40,000 copies in six months, not to mention pirated copies. Within a year, there was a play based on the book, and there, soon there were productions of it in Scotland and the United States. Then, in 1888, a stage play starring Richard Mansfield in the title role opened to acclaim. The audience raved about Mansfield's performance, finding it thrilling and terrifying. But then, two days after the play opened, the Jack the Ripper murders began. And it wasn't too long before people started connecting Jack the Ripper to the stage adaptation, suggesting that the serial killer's mind was poisoned by seeing the play. And still others thought that Mansfield himself was the killer, that his acting was just too good. And letters in the newspaper indicate that Mansfield was implicated in being Jack the Ripper himself. In this strange case of literary influence, we can see the nefarious power of one text move through multiple individuals and other texts. Gaze Beggar's opera influences Brody. Brody's legend and handicraft influences Stevenson to write Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde inspires a play which people believe influences a string of gruesome murders. The lesson of this story? 18th century texts that worried about the influence of novels should have been worrying about plays instead. Hi everyone, this is Kate, here to talk about literature, fans, and buying stuff. It's not at all surprising to me that books like the Harry Potter and Twilight series have influenced people's lives in really tangible ways. Uh, after all, the internet and the way our world is interconnected have offered up ways for readers to immerse themselves in texts in ways that have really never been possible before. But I guess what is more surprising to me is that that kind of fandom existed way before the internet. So one example that comes immediately to mind is the reception of a novel called The Sorrows of Young Werther. Uh, so this was written by Goethe in Germany, um, and he wrote this extremely melodramatic novel in 1774. Uh, it was so popular and so, I guess, emotionally resonant that the outfit of the main character, Young Werther, became really popular, and everyone could see it because it was like this bright blue and yellow ensemble. It was really noticeable. Um, 
But unfortunately, the main character also commits suicide. Uh, sorry, spoiler alert. Uh, also commits suicide in the novel, and reportedly that suicide also became popular. Um, so actually copycat suicides, like the idea of copycat suicides are even sometimes known as the Werther effect today. So what makes the case of Sydney Owenson so interesting to me is just how much she wanted and cultivated that sort of fandom and following. So Owenson was a woman later known as Lady Morgan, and she was born in the late 1700s somewhere in England or Ireland. So one of the things that I should explain now as it'll help to make more sense of her is that her most famous book is called The Wild Irish Girl. And it tells the story of a young English man who meets a beautiful young Irish noblewoman. They fall in love, and their marriage at the end of the book is supposed to represent the peaceful and loving union between England and Ireland during the Act of Union in 1800. Um, what's really interesting about her, though, is that Owenson worked hard throughout her life to encourage people to conflate her with her heroine, the wild, this wild Irish girl. So for one thing, that meant being forever young, you know, never aging. So in order to accomplish that, she refused to tell people her real birth date for years. And she also tried to reinforce the idea of her and like this character as bridging the gap between English and Irish people. And so in order to accomplish that, she insisted that she was born on the boat between England and Ireland. So like, may very well be true. We don't have evidence that it didn't happen. But even for an English major like me, the symbolism seems a little heavy handed. So, however, the real success of Owenson's embodiment of her heroine, Glorina, was a commercial one. Owenson would attend social functions dressed in the red cape and golden bodkin, so this pin thing, of Glorvina, this main character. And she would also carry the, the harp that her main character carried and played in the novel. In fact, Owenson was sometimes invited to these functions as Glorvina, so in order, she was asked to like provide entertainment to attending nobility as this, like pet Irish woman, almost. Um, Owenson seems to have been aware of a sort of perceived crassness in selling off the vision of Glorvina as a commodified sort of Irishness. Um, in one of her other novels, a character remarks at one point, uh, and this is a quote, the beauty of the Irish woman is the staple commodity of the country and superior to any fabric which foreign policy would impose upon us. Uh, so that beauty is something that she's definitely trying to market in Glorvina. Owenson would remark in some of her letters as well that she would attend an opera, and once this Glorvina craze had really caught on, she would see hundreds of Glorv other Glorvinas there, um, young women dressed in almost identical outfits, uh, and the same outfits that she had popularized through this heroine. So there you have it. When you see people doing cosplay of Sailor Moon or Disney princesses, know that Sydney Owenson paved the way for them. This is Becky Kling from Annotations, and on today's episode, The Text Made Me Do It, I will be speaking with Dave Wheeler, the author of Contingency Plans by TS Poetry Press. 
He has written for The Stranger, The Catapult, and The Morning News. He earned his BA in creative writing from Western Washington University and is now associate editor for Shelf Awareness in Seattle. So thanks for being here with us, Dave. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Exciting. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you've written about J.R. Ackerley's memoir, My Father and Myself, which you say helps you in coming out of the closet. So I was wondering if you could sure. just start, yeah, by telling me a little bit about the book and how it resonated with you and your experiences. Oh, sure. Um, so I, I picked up My Father and Myself while I was a bookseller at Elliott Bay Book Company in Seattle. Um, it was... It was a book that I stumbled across because it it dealt with early twentieth an early twentieth century man sort of coming out of the closet in in his in his own way, um, and it's it's this kind of quiet memoir by a, a really talented writer, and I think what drew me to it was was the pairing uh, he does. It's not just his story about sort of coming to terms with his own identity. It's also his story about his relationship with his father, but also his father's story, too. I think with a lot of queer narratives and particularly coming out narratives, we we tend to focus on the sort of novelty of, of queer sexuality. Um, but I think J.R. Ackerley and his memoir does something really brilliant by like looking at sexuality as a whole as this peculiarity of human experience, regardless of uh, how you identify. Right. Great. Yeah, I was reading the opening lines for the book. Or I was born in 1896, and my parents were married in 1919. So maybe it's trying to establish this kind of queerness or like this sort of atypical uh, environment that he grew up in. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think there's, uh, I think there's a lot of perceptions about the early 20th century as being um, silent and oppressive toward toward gay people. And well, I think that's true in a sort of predominant sense. I think Ackerley and um, other writers like uh, Samuel Stewart, uh, they sort of um, they sort of challenge that narrative, and there's there's this sort of oh matter of factness that uh, his father responds to his confessions with um, that I think that that is peculiar for the time that his that his parents were sort of unfazed by his confessions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So just to get a sense of how this book changed you, maybe you could tell me a little bit about your background and what it was like for you growing up. Of course. Um, so I grew up in North Idaho in, um, shall we say, a rather conservative Christian denomination. Uh, my father was actually an evangelical minister for 12 years of my childhood. And, oh, wow. Um, so sexuality was, as a whole, was largely uh, undiscussed. Yeah, it wasn't discussed. It wasn't given much thought or uh, interest. It was discouraged, uh, to be more precise. And and so it, it took actually me getting out of that 
working environment, I moved uh, to Bellingham, Washington to go to college at Western. Um, and even there, I was still sort of hiding uh, my sexual orientation uh, because I was still so heavily involved in, in church, although I changed denomination to the Presbyterians, um, who are a little bit more, who can be a little bit more relaxed about um, sexuality. So by the time I found Ackerley's book, um, I had sort of run the gambit of um, being a pastor's kid and also working in a church. Uh, during my college years, I, I served as volunteer and then also as an intern for college ministry. So um, I, had, I had done a lot of stuff and work with religion and um, when I moved to Seattle and got this job at Elliott Bay and found this book finally, um, I was just sort of exhausted with hiding. And so um, I, I think coming out stories are often a matter of keeping a secret until you can't anymore. And I reached that point of not being able to. And so when, when I read Ackerley and sort of the, the humor and the grace that he he employs while talking about his own sexuality and his own relationship with his parents, I, I had this epiphany moment of, I can do that too. I can, I, I'm at a point in my life where I can have that conversation too. It didn't go quite the same way as it does for Ackerley, but, <laughs> you know, it, it did sort of serve as that last nudge to get me to do it. Okay, great. Yeah, you uh, mentioned the line where uh, J.R. Ackerley says to his father, I don't mind telling you I went to meet with a sailor friend, and his father replies, it's all right, old boy, I prefer not to know. So long as you enjoyed yourself, that's the main thing. So it's kind of this sense of just the father being okay with it but not needing to know a lot about it that seemed to kind of yeah. comfort you. Yeah. Um, so where were you when you first read this book? How did you find it? Um, so I was living in Seattle with um, some roommates, and I was uh, I was at work actually. Um, I think somebody else had another customer had requested a copy. We didn't actually have it on the shelf, um, but I was I was working in the special orders department at the time, and when I saw the title and I saw the description. Um, as I was going to order a copy for this customer, I ordered two, one for myself, um, because I was, I was not so secretly, um, starting to compile books that I thought might be, uh, might be able to speak to my, my circumstances. And so I, I read it, um, largely, um, in one sitting, um, I remember one night, uh, on one of my weekends and just feeling, um, relief and, um, had experienced something similar. I mean, a lot of people experience coming out a lot. There are a lot of different coming out stories. Um, but for some reason, this one just sort of resonated with me, this sort of meek, um, mild-mannered young man, um, just sort of, uh, felt like a mirror to, to myself. Hmm. Wow. So, 
you mentioned it didn't quite go the same for you when you had that conversation with your father. Uh, correct. Okay, so uh, do you want to speak a little bit to how it did go and whether you sort of used tactics similar to J.R. Ackerley in his memoir? You know, I wouldn't be able to speak to um, tactics. I, I think I think there's a certain level of um, just... Uh, a rush of words when, when you finally need to say what, what you need to say. It's taken some time, but I think through through conversation and uh, just a continued level of openness and um, willingness to overlook differences, I guess, uh, we, we've reached a sort of a detente or an agree-to-disagree situation between us. Um, you know, I, I guess similar to um, what Ackerley says, his father says that you know he just prefers not to know, which I think in in some ways is a really um, heartening response. That uh, cool, he's he's not going to um, hold his son's sexuality against him, but in in a more modern sense, it's a little bit um, undermining, I guess, that like he doesn't he's not interested and doesn't want to know any uh any more about his his son's romantic life um you know i, I think it could go either way and I'm, I'm generally an optimist so um, I, I like to think the best in my father as well as Ackerley's. um and as you as you might read in my father myself um Ackerley's father is a is a is a complicated man, and I I think he's um, he's doing the best by his son as he can. Thanks for that. That's definitely you know I think a situation that a lot of people face in different ways, and it's great that you found a book that inspired you to to have that courage. Yeah, um, I was I was really lucky to find it, um, and I, I think been a reader so I'm always I've always been looking for um, uh, books that will sort of illuminate my own experiences as well as open me up to other people's experiences and so I think from that point or even before that point I had been reading um, uh, a lot of different books from a lot of different queer writers um, and have since sort of delved more deeply into um queer art and literature um, in a way that sort of has broadened my, my understanding of what it of what it means great so um, my last question was maybe we kind of already touched upon this but what kind of lasting impact has this book had on you um that's a good question um I I would say it it's one that I want to return to. I haven't been much of a rereader as an adult. I, you know, working in the book industry, there's always something new coming out, and I uh, sort of feel obligated to stay on top of that, which sort of severely limits my ability to reread books that I've enjoyed. But it is a book that I want to return to um, because I think it, um, relationships in a way that I think is interesting and I think um, that's becoming something that's more and more 
curious to me um, as I get older. Um, looking, it, I, I'm 30 now, and I sort of feel um, right in the middle between um, older generations that um, might not understand me and my peers as well, um, and younger generations that I don't understand at all. Um, and, and I think that that's a those generation of and that I want to do more, um, which which I don't know that I would have uh, been paying as close attention to if I if I hadn't picked up a book like my father myself, um, because it is so um, so interested in the father's experiences and the father's um, uh, what he went through growing up. Um, the wars and uh, things like that, and Ackerley's own experiences, and sort of comparing and contrasting. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And it's great to hear such a nice transformational story about a text doing something so positive. I feel like a lot of the stories we found are about people reading a book and then going off and committing a crime or something. So it's nice to have a positive story to, <laughs> to throw in the mix. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll be interested to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Check out our website, www.annotationspodcast.wordpress.com, for links to further information about the contents of this episode. Look for past episodes and catch our next episode about surprising bestsellers on our website, SoundCloud, and iTunes. <laughs>